Okay, I think we have everybody in. Uh, welcome everybody. Thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, we have another lesson from Robert, of course. Before I forget, the only announcement that I have is that uh, apparently a few people have noticed that on the uh, Bible study page of the website, if you want to access old posts, as in some of the early lessons that we did back in June, uh, my incompetent web design has not made those available. So I will um, I will work on making those available as soon as Monday, and my apology for having the old lessons disappear. Uh, and of course, if you notice any um, any quirks in the presentation or information availability, please do let me or uh, Robert know, and uh, we'll get those fixed up and uh, as quick as we can. So, um, so that's all I have, Robert. Uh, unless you have any other items, we're ready to go. Okay, sounds good. Um, okay, we are on session six, by the way. I have already posted my notes for session seven, meaning oh, for man. next week. Yeah, uh, I, I opened am... up seven here by accident. All right. Yeah. Thanks for letting me know. So, mm -hmm. I am ahead, which has never happened so far, so I'm very proud of my little self. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> so let's get to the passage today, which is in John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22, I believe. Uh, no, through 25. Okay. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Now the Jewish feast of Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple courts those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting at tables. So he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple courts with the sheep and the oxen. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold the doves, he said, Take these things away from here. Do not make my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will devour me. So then the Jewish leaders responded, What sign can you show us since you are doing these things? Jesus replied, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Then the Jewish leaders said to him, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and are you going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the saying that Jesus had spoken. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover, many people believed in his name because they saw the miraculous signs he was doing. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He did not need anyone to testify about man, for he knew what was in man. Well, that is the text for today. And I want to start with, you know, kind of the big gorilla in the room, which is that if you're familiar with the Bible, there, the temple cleansing appears in two places. Now, what we make of that is what I'm going to discuss at first. Now, hopefully this won't be the focus of our discussion today, but I've got to address it. In the other three Gospels, <clears throat> excuse me, in the other three Gospels, there's a similar story that appears at the end of Jesus' ministry, right before the cross, pretty much. Now, in the Gospel of John, we have this temple cleansing that appears at the beginning, right? This is pretty much the first public act that Jesus has done. Because remember, the wedding was semi-private, and before that, we just have John the Baptist. So the question naturally arises, well, is this the same event? meaning there's only one temple cleansing, but at least somebody's got it wrong or out of order, I should say. No, perhaps not necessarily wrong, but out of order. Or are there two events? And the reason that I want to address this is because people have talked about this forever and they've made such a big kind of controversy about it. You could find a zillion papers about it. So at the very least, we should be aware. Personally, I don't think this is a major deal, however you resolve it. Um, so with that in mind, let's let's set up the problem real quick, and then we will set up the potential solutions. The problem is that the two events are quite similar. Um, like I said, and in the other gospels is at the end, and in this gospel is at the beginning, which leads many people to suspect that this is the same event. Okay. 
Now, what are the options then? One option, of course, is that although these events are similar, they're actually distinct. These are two separate events, and I will address that possibility at the end. But what if this is one event? Okay, there's only one temple cleansing. It could be that John, again, excuse me, is not writing in chronological order. I, in my little blog post, I write, or I, I set forth four possibilities about how one can write or narrate about time. And by the way, this is from a scholarly article by Lydia McGrew. I did not come up with this, but I think it's quite brilliant. Uh, the options are, you could write chronologically and get it right. Uh, you could write chronologically and get it wrong, meaning you just made a mistake. And then there's the two other possibilities that are trickier. Um, you could write a chronologically. This is actually the fourth option in my blog, but I'm going to address it first. Meaning that you clearly are not implying a chronology. We do this all the time. Like, let's say that you were to ask me, hey, Robert, what did you do yesterday? And I may say, well, yesterday I mowed the lawn. Well, and of course I went to work and, um, you know, I went to lunch, I went to dinner. Okay. And in that short recounting, it's clear, right, that I probably went to work first and then mowed the lawn. At any rate, it's clear that I'm not attempting to recount what I did yesterday in a chronological order. And that's clear to the listener, making my example an achronological narration. Now, the trickiest of these options would be a dyschronological narration. That's one that appears to be chronological, but isn't. And, but it isn't on purpose. This one is tougher to explain. Um, Perhaps the, the best example I could give would be, let's say that the Gospel of John wasn't meant to be a chronology, you know, from kind of from time A to time B, but these were sermons or homilies that John was John had written, and then they get compiled. Well, in a sermon, you may give the impression of a chronology, but you're not, but because of the genre, it is implied that this is not necessarily chronological, right? Like in a sermon, I may say, well, Jesus did this and Jesus said that and Jesus and Jesus did this other thing because they all connect to the point that I'm making and the audience understands, yeah, this, I mean, he may be playing fast and loose with when the things happen. What matters is that they actually happened. Okay. Well, if you believe that the temple cleansing is only one event, not that there's two, um, you could pick those two latter options. Either John was writing achronologically, meaning it's clear to the audience that this is not in order, but I think that's a very hard position to take because when you read the text, it, John clearly seems to write in a chronological order. He seems to say, well, in a few days after this, Jesus went there and then he did that. So I don't think that achronological is going to work for you which leaves you with a dyschronological narration, meaning that there is an impression of a chronology, but possibly because of the genre considerations, one should know that that impression uh, is not trying to deceive. This is not necessarily chronological. Um, I, in my opinion, I think that that is also a, a difficult line to take, particularly if you have a very high opinion of, of the Bible, which we normally call it inerrancy, if you believe the Bible has no errors. Sure, you could square this chronology with biblical inerrancy, um, but then it kind of leaves it up to you to decide when this should be chronological or not, and it's invisible. There's not a clue in the text. So it, it puts you in an awkward spot. Now, there's many uh, great theologians and preachers who would take the dyschronological view. So I'm not trying to put that view down, but in my opinion, it's, it's kind of a hard uh, view to take. Okay, so what is the other option? The other option if, is that these are two different events. Personally, to go ahead and disclose, this is the view that I hold. I think it makes a whole lot of sense, actually, that the, there's two temple cleansings. And I set out a bunch of reasons on the blog. 
I will go through them very quickly just to at least show that this is a very plausible alternative. Um, number one, the narratives are actually quite different. For example, the things listed, you know, like oxen and sheep and the money changers and all those things, those lists are different in John than they are in the other three Gospels. Also, it it makes sense that you know, the temple being kind of the central place for worship, the, the central place of religion for the Jews, that maybe Jesus would do this twice. This is very important in his ministry. Um, this is an overtly messianic act, meaning this really points to Jesus being the, the Messiah, the Christ. And it could be that the first time People are just getting to know Christ, so they kind of tolerate it. But then when he does it again at the end of his ministry, and Jesus has, I would say, disappointed the people, and I will explain what I mean by that. Uh, when he does it again, then people are not so okay with it, and they end up crucifying him, of course. Um, and then what Jesus says is also different in both narratives. And the last piece of evidence that to me is actually quite compelling is that the response of the Pharisees in the John narrative is to say the temple has been, has been built over the last 46 years. Well, we know actually when the temple started being built, and 46 years would put it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not at the end. Um, so the, there's actually kind of historical evidence even within the text that this would be a different event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I will leave it at that. I am content with that explanation. I think those are very good reasons. And then if people have questions or pushback, you know, feel free to uh, to say that at the end. Um, but okay, uh, leaving that aside, let's get into what the text really means. The first thing that we need to talk about, especially if you're new to the Bible, which it sounds like most of you guys are not, but some of you are. So again, um, I, I always want to be very, very clear. The temple is it, the temple is it in, in 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 a sense that it is the central place for the Jewish religion. The, it's it's the most important thing. Without the temple, the Jewish religion kind of doesn't work. Um, and and you may say, well, that's not true because we have Jews today. Well, the the Jewish religion had to, and I'm not trying to insult anybody here. Uh, okay, I'm not trying to be disrespectful here to to, to Judaism, but it, this is just true. The, the religion had to kind of reinvent itself. So now we have what is often called rabbinic Judaism, because it's a form of Judaism that does not have the temple, which has to look very differently. Because think about the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, if you're a Jew, what do you do? You go to the temple at least once a year, if not multiple times a year. That's where you do sacrifices. That's where you would go pray from time to time. Like, you just can't do it without the temple. So when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, the religion has to go through a change. Okay? But at the time of Jesus, the temple is still around. So it is still the central location, the central figure, the, the central nexus, if we want to call it that. Well, the temple was built, or the first temple uh, rather, was built in Old Testament times by Solomon, the son of David. And the Ark of the Covenant, in, isn't the Ark of the Covenant uh, in the, oh, the movie, Matt, you have to help me. I think you like this movie. I, Indiana I'm great Jones. with movie references, let me tell you. <laughs> no, but Indiana Jones, right? I, I've never seen it. That's, that's Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, there Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, Cecil. Um. I have seen just as many movies as Matt has, so yeah. forgive me. Um, I claim there's only one good movie, but I will leave that for another day. Uh, <laughs> uh, at any rate. Okay, so if you've watched that movie, it would be that arc. I'm not saying that that movie is by any means historically accurate or reliable. I'm just making a connection there to pop culture. At any rate, the Ark of the Covenant was incredibly important. That's where God... 
that that was kind of his dwelling place and from where he would speak to the people. And the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, which was the innermost chamber of the temple. Only one person could go in there once a year. Okay, so this was incredibly holy, incredibly important. Well, the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians and then the ark goes missing. Uh, nobody knows where the ark is. And the temple is later rebuilt. Okay, it is in, in all the dates and stuff, they're in the blog. So if you want a more detailed narrative, you can go find it there. By the way, I, I just outright copied stuff from Encyclopedia Britannica. I give a link, so it's not cheating, I think. At any rate, uh, the, t- the temple is rebuilt. But that temple, that second temple, it's a much less, um, you know, opulent and, and sophisticated version of the first temple. Then that second temple is also, it also goes through all sorts of trouble. It is defiled and it is, it is sacked. Essentially, most of its stuff is taken. And then that second temple is fixed up, is we could even say rebuilt. And that was has happened over the last 46 years. Now, the, the main thing that I'm trying to drive at is the temple is the most important thing. To insult the temple would be a very close second to insulting God. Okay, So when Jesus goes there, it, you have to be thinking of that, like the holiest of, of, of holiest of places. Uh, it would be like, oh my God. I'm not going to make that joke. I was going to say it would be like attacking the Capitol on January 6th, but that would be uncalled for. <laughs> we just, we're going to merge the podcast and the Bible study into a combo. Yeah. Current events, Bible study show. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm trying to keep all political references out, but that one, it fits a little too good to leave it out. All right. Um, okay. So. I, knew, I don't have the rim shot ready. I can't. I can't give that to you. Well, uh, I, I probably wouldn't deserve it anyways. Okay, so um, Jesus goes to the temple and what he finds there, not that Jesus would not know this, um, you know, but in the story, what Jesus finds there is people selling animals and, and exchanging money. Now, why was this happening? Number one, uh, let's talk about the money. There was a temple tax. So every Jew was supposed to pay a certain tax to the temple. This comes from the Old Testament. And it was important, first of all, that you paid the correct amount, right? And so you need change. There's no debit cards. There's no checks. You need the correct amount. But also, you cannot use coins that have the emperor's image on it because that would be considered idolatry, or at the very least, sacrilegious. So if you have, you know, the correct amount, but your coins are the wrong kind, then you got to exchange them for the correct kind of coin. So that's why you have the money changers there. And then why do you have all the animals at the temple? Well, you're probably uh, familiar with this, but part of Judaism is sacrifices at the temple, right? And these sacrifices are very important, is how you... Uh, atone for your sin, okay? Um, which all of that imagery will be very important to Christ's sacrifice later on in the story. So we will revisit the sacrificial system, but at this point, it's just important that we all are aware of that. Well, so if you need an animal to sacrifice at the temple, what do you do? Well, when when the Jews were not occupied by another nation and they had their own nation, and people, you know, all every Jew had some land or all but one tribe. They could have their own animals and take them to the temple and sacrifice them. But now we live in more cosmopolitan and, and complicated times. So a Jew would probably go to the temple and just buy an animal right then and there and then sacrifice it. So that's why you have people selling animals. Just to say this again, I know that probably everyone was aware of this, but I'd rather cover it, cover it than not cover it. Um, okay, well, so Jesus encounters this scene where, where they're doing all of this commerce, and he kicks them all out, okay? 
uh, he he makes something like a whip and he is kicking out the merchants he is also whipping the animals presumably so the animals uh, also get out he is turning over the tables i mean imagine imagine the scene for a second right you have all these people with all their their money right all these coins however they pile them up and jesus is just kicking all this stuff off their tables and turning their tables it's quite the scene and um then Okay, I'll, I'll actually kind of stop there in the narrative because then we have the response by the Pharisees. But before I get to that, let's think for a second, why would Jesus react that way? And in the text, it actually doesn't say, well, the one explicit explanation is do not turn the temple into a marketplace. So, uh, you know, we could just stop there and not make any inferences and we could say the problem is that the temple was a place of sacrifice, a place of prayer, uh, you know, a holy place. And, oh, oh, somebody saying in the chat, this is actually very important, that uh, the animals that had to be sacrificed at the temple had to, they could have no blemishes of any kind. So let's say that you brought an animal, but then the animal had a blemish or developed one, meaning it broke a leg or something. Then you could exchange it at the temple and, and get an animal without a blemish. Okay, but maybe the problem was that the temple was meant to be, like I said, holy in a place of sacrifice and prayer, but it had been turned, it had been defiled effectively by being turned into a marketplace, and that was unacceptable. And that, by the way, is a very good explanation. We could just end there. Many people will say that the problem was that the people were being financially exploited. So the money changers and the people selling the, the animals, they were, again, financially exploiting those who came to the temple because they didn't really have, uh, you know, they, they didn't have an option but to kind of buy into that. And the, the rates that were being charged were really high. Now, the problem with that explanation, I would say there's, there's two problems. Uh, and it might be true. I'm not saying that it isn't, but but I think it's unlikely because one, there's no indication in the text that that was the issue. And number two, there's actually no historical evidence that points to this. There's actually some historical evidence that points to the fact that people who engaged in this business were quite honest because otherwise it was almost like stealing from God. It, it was a form of, of sacrilege. Um, so, um, this leads us to the explanation I am going to propose, and um, I just want to be clear on this. I actually try very hard not to bring any original ideas to to this little uh, you know study. Uh, essentially, if if some expert, if somebody in history has not said something, pretty much I won't say it. I, I try to have really good backup. Um, but the theory that I'm I'm going to propose is a little bit of my own thinking so feel free to disregard it i guess or or think of it with quite a bit of suspicion um let me read a passage from jeremiah this is in the old testament so in the synoptic gospels the other three gospels jesus calls the people in the temple a den of robbers okay and that phrase den of robbers is actually quoting jeremiah okay a book in the old testament and I think when people hear this word robbers, they're thinking, oh yeah, you see, so they were robbing the people. They were charging them too much money or something like that. But listen to what Jeremiah says and, and consider whether that's the case. It says, and I'm starting in verse eight, this is chapter seven. It says, but just look at you. You are putting your confidence in a false belief that will not deliver you. You steal, you murder, you commit adultery. You lie when you swear an oath. You sacrifice to the god Baal. You pay allegiance to other gods whom you have not previously known. Then you come and stand in my presence in this temple I have claimed as my own and say, we are safe. You think you are so safe that you go on doing all those hateful sins. Do you think this temple I have claimed as my own is to be a hideout for robbers? You had better take note. I have seen for myself what you have done, says the Lord. Okay, so look at what the problem was in Jeremiah. 
the Jews, they were committing all sorts of awful sins, idolatry and murder and going after other gods. But then they were like, ah, we're fine because we got God's temple. So we're in the clear. Like we, we can do whatever evil things we want to do, but we're safe because we've got the temple. So it, the, the problem is this awful hypocrisy, right? And I suspect... Again, I suspect that perhaps that's what was going on in the temple uh, it, when when Jesus cleanses the temple, that people were viewing the sacrificial system as merely transactional. Effectively, they were going to the temple and going, I would like to buy me one forgiveness, please. How much is one forgiveness? Oh, this much? Thank you very much. And they would go on their merry way. And if you're thinking, Robert, you're just making stuff up. Um, remember that the biggest issue that Jesus kept bringing up with the Pharisees was hypocrisy. You guys are hypocrites. You guys are hypocrites. You guys are hypocrites. Now, take it or leave it. There's one other option, by the way, why Jesus would be so indignant that uh, the merchants were there, which is in the original temple, meaning the one that Solomon built, the Gentiles could actually go kind of all the way up to the temple. They could be in the temple court. But in this version of the temple, there were multiple courts. And first you had the court in which the the male Jews could go into. Then the female Jews could go into. That would be another court. And then it's only in the outer court that the Gentiles would be allowed. That was not part of the original design. And so now the Gentiles would be in the outer court with all the merchants doing their business. How could the Gentiles, Gentiles meaning non-Jews, by the way, um, how could they worship and, and, you know, feel like they're encountering God in this holy place when it's effectively a marketplace? Okay. So that's another possibility. Um, but at any rate, clearly what was going on was not correct, was, you know. Well, and this leads us to the response by the Pharisees. I don't think that I have explained the Pharisees very well. I'll probably have to do that in another session with more detail. But at this point, I will say these are the religious leaders of, of their time, and they're very religious, very devout, uh, perhaps in a hypocritical sense. You know, again, that is the accusation that keeps popping up from Jesus towards them. Um, but they, many of them would have had the Old Testament memorized. They would have paid the right tax to the temple. They would have followed all the rules and then some rules that they came up with. So just incredibly devout in that external sense. Uh, well, so so the Pharisees say to Jesus, you know, give us a sign that you are the Messiah. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly, right? And Jesus, throughout the New Testament, never acquiesces to that request. Jesus provides signs so that people may believe, but when people effectively say, give me a sign or I will not believe, Jesus never plays that game. Um, so that it, it kind of sets up this theme that we are going to see uh, throughout. But, but at the same time, Jesus does not leave them empty-handed. He says, fine, destroy the temple and I will raise it in three days. And this is incredible. This is already a prophecy of his death and resurrection, right? And the text makes it clear that after the resurrection, the disciples thought back to this moment and realized, oh, this is what he was talking about, you know, which is kind of neat to see that even the disciples had these aha moments. And it, you know, even if, even if you're not a believer, I, I hope you can recognize the, the beautiful irony and poetry that is going on here because Jesus is talking past them in, in a beautiful way. He says, destroy this temple, but the temple is his body, right? Because remember, the temple is where God dwells, but Jesus is God. So in a, in a sense, God dwells in Jesus, but it, it's a much 
is an infinitely greater sense in the sense that Jesus is in fact God. Um, and then he will come back to life. He will be resurrected, I ought to say, sorry, in three days. Um, so there's this prediction that is not clear even to the disciples at this point. Then um, we get this last little paragraph this is that Jesus stays there, you know, uh, well, it doesn't say, it says during this, this feast, the feast of the Passover, he does other miraculous signs and notice those are not narrated. And I want to point this out because I, I don't think that we should ever approach the gospels as a comprehensive story of everything that Jesus did. There are places in, in the Gospels that clearly say Jesus did more stuff. We just didn't write it down. And if that seems a little silly to you, you know, just consider consider the times that we're talking about and consider the tools they had to work with. The, the disciples are writing probably in scrolls. You have a very limited amount of room to write in and almost no capacity to edit, right? Like if you if you wrote something, you're probably not going to go back and, and and kind of fix it later, unless you write notes on the margin. I suppose that would be somewhat typical. Um, so you really have to pick your narrative very well and say these are the things I absolutely must share with the world. Well, but like I said, uh, Jesus stays uh, for the feast of the Passover. He does other miraculous signs, and then many people believe in him. But this is kind of tricky, right? People believe in him, but it says Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. And again, I, I paraphrase there slightly. It, particularly when you read the, the, the other three Gospels, it's quite clear that when people started getting the impression that Jesus was the Messiah. They expected a, a political Messiah. We've discussed this before. I think it was two or three weeks ago. They expected Jesus to be some sort of king and conqueror. He would uh, probably in their minds, you know, Jesus would rise to power and would restore the, would restore Israel, would restore the kingdom of Judah and defeat the Romans probably, you know, that's the kind of Messiah that oftentimes they expect, and this is explicit in the Gospels. Now, in this particular passage, it doesn't say that, but I think it's fair to connect it. The people are believing in Jesus as the Messiah, but they have a wildly different interpretation of what that will look like. And I would say most importantly, they won't change their mind later, you know, when they realize that they're wrong. Because that that is the crux of the issue, right? It's not it's not bad per se that at first you're kind of mistaken and it's like, oh, I think Jesus will act this way or that way. The problem is once Jesus subverts your expectations, you go, uh, nope, forget that. I, you know, I want the Messiah in my head. I want the one that I'm thinking about. Um, and so we end in that very interesting note of people believing in him, but Jesus saying, nope, uh, that, you know, they, I will not entrust myself to them. They have something else in mind. And that would be the first cleansing of the temple. All right. Thanks, Robert. Uh, I didn't uh, interrupt you to give a notification about uh, question asking opportunities because I figure we will have time tonight. So, uh, anybody interested in raising a, a question or a point of discussion, go ahead and just write question in the chat as usual. Don't need to write your question out. Just write the word question, and I will uh, get to you momentarily. Um, but to give people a minute to gather their thoughts and decide if they want to speak or not, I will um, ask some questions about uh, some things that I observed during the lecture here. So this might be a very basic question, but again, that's the perspective from which I am coming, a person with almost no understanding of these stories or texts. Um, we talk about the the cleansing of the temple as interpreted as being one event or two events. I'm unclear about what the significance of that means. That is to say, if one, it means what? And if two, it means what? Ah, uh, okay. 
if two, then no problem. But if one, people would use this to say that the Bible has errors in it and that this is clearly an error in the Bible, that John got it wrong and he put it in the wrong place chronologically as compared to the other Gospels. Oh, so it's it's relative to the other tellings of the story. Yep, yep. Okay, so it would, it would just be uh, like a, a weapon of discrediting him or something. Correct. But yep. if there are other, um, obviously there are other Gospels, other tellings of the story, so even if one was incorrect, I, I mean, are we supposed to believe there are no errors of any kind throughout the Gospels? Well, so that that's a very good question. Many Christians, I would say the vast majority of Christians would hold to what's called biblical inerrancy. So they, many Christians would believe that there are no errors in the Bible. Now, notice that I'm saying many, and I'm not saying all, because I don't think any Christian would say that you must believe in biblical inerrancy or you're not a Christian. Okay, that would be taking it a step too far. Right. Um, but the many, like I said, most Christians would believe that. And so this is definitely kind of a, you know, a dig at them that oh, here's a clear error. Got it. Okay. So if the premise is unquestionable biblical perfection, and I can demonstrate what appears to be an inconsistency or a contradiction, unquestionable biblical perfection is now uh, erased as a premise. Co correct. Got correct. It. Okay. Uh, um, the other topic I, I thought was interesting, and um, you might be able to help me see where this might come up later, but um, I, naturally I tend to think of a lot of these stories in terms of modern politics or modern news or just what's going on in the world right now. And this concept of destroying things to rebuild them in a better, more pure, more moral form on the other side of it is just something that comes up all the time and it's a very difficult moral question to wrestle with because what are the moral implications of destroying something of, of I guess committing a bad act depending on if you see it as bad or not but doing something destructive in pursuit of construction on the other side does the Bible well do we get more stories of or more definition as to when this is morally appropriate I know that Jesus has a hand in this one so obviously uh, it's gonna get some well, just by the, by the fact alone that it's by his hand, it's going to be presumed to have some moral legitimacy, I suppose. But do we get more commentary on why and when that sort of thing is appropriate and how to define that? Ooh, this is a tough one. But so this is the, oh, people might correct me on this, to my knowledge, this is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus acts with aggression, with physical aggression, in either the one or two temple cleansings, however you, you choose to look at it. Um, in the Old Testament, however, we do have many more cases of, of violence, right? In, in the Old Testament, we have wars and people mm -hmm. conquering one another. And, uh, you know, it, so it's, it's kind of a different setting. It's not generally like an individual, uh, although... No, I lie. I can, I can think of at least a few instances uh, where it would be an individual acting aggressively. Um, and I think I'm going to address kind of this story more specifically. I, there, there's two things to think about. One, it's different when God does it, right? And it, in here it's tricky because God is now also a man. So we're thinking, well, a person should not do this, but we can't lose sight that you know, if the Bible is true, this person is God. So he's kind of entitled to everything. He, well, not kind of, he is entitled to everything. And this is, yeah. and, and then on top of that, we can add the layer that this is, the temple is his house. Like literally that is the other name for the temple. This would be the house of God. So this would be God coming to his own house and saying, hey, you guys are not supposed to be doing this. Get out, mm -hmm. you know? So in this particular instance, that would be the response that, that Jesus as God himself in his own house is absolutely entitled to do this. Ah, when, it's like a property rights issue as opposed yeah, to like, in a, sense. It's a little more narrow than I was hoping for, I suppose, yeah. but all right, I'll take um, it. But in the, in the Old Testament, I think we would have, your, your question would be much more poignant in that regard, because mm -hmm. I think your question is very, 
I mean, it's a, such an important one. Uh, and perhaps I'll come up with a more a broader answer another day, if you don't mind, and bring that answer. Yeah, yeah and you're right. Uh, obviously, as I mentioned, I don't have a lot of experience reading these scripts, but coming at this and hearing a story of, of Jesus's aggression, I suppose, or of uh, a kind of a destructive effort in pursuit of a construction on the other side, at least. That's not... Um, not the way that just as kind of a lay person in this environment, I often picture him portrayed. He's a much more passive person, uh, and, and not, uh, well, I don't know, not, uh, not, I guess, telling everyone how it is in this way and flipping <laughs> yeah. tables or the image of him flipping tables is such a strange one, but, uh, okay. Yeah. I, I don't mean to consume any more, uh, time on that. So let's see, um, who would like to speak. I think Gilgamesh is up first. Gilgamesh, go ahead and unmute okay. yourself if you're ready. I wanted to talk about um, the whole thing with Judas Iscariot because when he decided to betray Jesus for the and they gave him, did was it because the Jew the Israelites told him that they just wanted to put him on trial and you know find out who he really is? They he didn't know they were going to crucify they were going to put him through hell, whip him, have all that stuff, then and then crucify him. So when he found out, isn't this ultimately why he he ends up? Kill, killing himself because when he realized he had been lied to and they were going to do far worse to Jesus this is why he um, when he sees him again he can't forgive himself for what he did to him even though Jesus forgives him and says I knew what you were going to do yet I forgive you he still ended up killing himself because he couldn't ultimately forgive himself for what he did Um, I okay so a couple of thoughts that come to mind on that I don't remember the passage of Jesus saying that to Judas, and I'm not I'm not doubting you, but I, I cannot think of a verse that says that. What that he knew that he was going to betray him and forgave him. Um, yes, particularly that last part. Oh. Um, and if somebody in the chat, okay, I okay, I am not. I'm not wrong on that. So there's not a verse that says that. And oh, I just okay. wanted to double check to make sure that I, that I, you know, I wasn't losing it. But the first part is absolutely true. I mean, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And we see it here at the very beginning of the gospel where like Jesus is already walking towards the cross. And at the Last Supper, Jesus says, right, like, if I'm going to paraphrase, but I know who's going to betray me. And, and he even tells that guy, and I say that guy because at the time, not all the disciples know, he says, go do what you're going to do. It's a very powerful scene of okay. telling his own betrayer, I know what you're going to do. Get on with it. Get it done. But there's not a scene after the betrayal in which oh. Jesus says, I forgive you. Um, now, it. Uh, the, the real question is, would Jesus have forgiven him? And yeah, of course, it doesn't say it in the gospel, but presumably the, the answer would be yes. If Judas had repented, yes, Jesus would have forgiven him because Jesus died for the sins of all. Okay. Now, I was just curious about that because it was always interesting that he knew. He didn't stop him from what he did. But at the same time, did Judas know that they were going to put, you know, do all that stuff with the spear, the, you know, the beating that he took for literally two hours and then crucify him? Or did he think the, G the Israelites were just going to put him on trial and then have him locked up? I, that's where I have a question about. Did he know how far they were going to take it with him when he decided to betray Jesus? Mm. Okay, that's much harder. I yeah, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what he would have been thinking, but I suppose we could, I could argue both sides of this. On one hand, um, he he had to know they were going to kill him, it, it, just because of the setting. And and ex the reason I say that is because the Pharisees had been looking for a way to kill him, and this is ah. in the Gospels multiple times, and so it. Perhaps he wasn't aware of that, but I would think he was. Now, did he know exactly how they were going to do it? Because, you know, the Jews would not do crucifixions. The Romans did, yeah. did crucifixion. So perhaps Judas did not realize he would be by crucifixion. Uh, but I, I would say with a fair amount of certainty, yes, he knew Jesus would be killed. Was it in another one? Was it Jesus that called himself the king of Jews or was it the Israelites? It well, it was, yes, it was both. It was oh, okay. I mean, in the sense that Jesus, uh, 
acknowledge <laughs> that he was the king of the Jews. Yes. But so this comes it, up in the trial. Go okay. Ahead. So when when they they call themselves Israelites, they didn't call themselves the Jews. So did they consider that word an insult to call him the king of the Jews? No, uh, no, okay. they, I mean, they, and they do use the word the Jews. Like, for example, actually, in the text we read today, okay, when when the religious leaders confront Jesus, actually, what it says in the Greek is the Jews. Oh, but, okay. Um, it's clear, just in the text, that when they say the Jews, they mean the leaders of the Jews. And to be honest, I think that translations now. Okay, this is me reading between the lines. Take this with a grain of salt. They may be afraid to use the term the Jews because maybe that sounds a little anti-Semitic, so they'd rather say their leaders or the Pharisees or whatever. But okay, uh, perhaps I'm wrong on that. No, it makes sense. Well, thank you, Robert. Mm-hmm. You have a good Thanks, night. Thanks, Gilgamesh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Have a good night. Uh, Lady Golden Dragon is up next. Lady Golden Dragon, if you want to unmute your mic, you are good to go. Okay. Um, I, I do have a question, but I was wondering if you minded if I said a little bit about the the temple and, and the conversation there. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're welcome to uh, chime in on that. Okay. Um, because, uh, Robert, you actually had something in your blog that I thought was interesting about uh, someone mentioning that it it kind of has a... An, an attitude to it when when he says destroy this temple it almost sounds like a yeah go do it i dare you mm-hmm. and i will restore it and so to matt's question about like jesus was a fed is <laughs> <laughs> what this was yeah when when jesus says uh destroy it and um oh well to, to matt's question about like uh when is it okay to in like in the today's sense where you say but break it down to build it back better whatever um I, I definitely don't think it's it's quite the same sense that hmm. he's saying, yes, let's break it all down and do it better this time. It's like, well, in a sense, they are already destroying it. And then in reference to Jesus, they are going to destroy it. And he's he's just stating it as a matter of fact. And that ties back into um, Gilgamesh's comments about Judas Iscariot, where Jesus says again, you know, go do what you're going to do, but I will rise in three days. And I, I, I think these these uh really really tie together pretty well actually mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so so yeah this, this is my comments on the, the temple but uh my question i was wondering about um jesus and and his behavior in this um episode where uh, as you mentioned in in uh, a few minutes ago that it is uh, aggressive and a lot of people have this view of jesus that don't really incorporate this instance because yeah it, it seems pretty rare for for jesus to behave this way and I, I was just wondering if you had any comments on why this instance in particular jesus does such aggressive things with a whip and turning over tables and, and those sorts of things i think that it it has to do with the centrality of the temple like like i was saying the temple is really is so central. This is the dwelling place of God. This is the house of God. This is where. Um, actually, let me read. I quoted a, a verse in my blog that um, this is from Second Chronicles, uh, and you can find it in the blog. But it says, after Solomon finished building the Lord's temple in the royal palace and accomplished all his plans for the Lord's temple and his royal palace, the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have answered your prayer and chosen this place to be my temple where sacrifices are to be made. When I close up the sky so that it doesn't rain or command locusts to devour the land's vegetation or send a plague among my people, if my people who belong to me humble themselves, pray, seek to please me and repudiate their sinful practices, then I will, then I will respond from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Now I will be attentive and responsive to the prayers offered in this place. So it is it is the place. It is the place where where man can meet God. And then of course Jesus supersedes that, right? Jesus becomes the temple. Um, but it still did not make the insult any less. You know, that they they were taking the temple and turning it into a marketplace. And and I, like I said, I really believe when he says that he's 
He's pointing at much more than just the activity that was going on there, but just the fact that this whole religion had become hypocritical and just transactional, and you've completely kind of missed it all and offended God, and and there would just be nothing worse, right? Like, in, there, there's nothing worse than an affront to God, and and so that's why it has such a huge reaction. Um, but of course, I am here quote unquote, putting myself in the place of Jesus, like trying to understand what was in his mind. And so anything that I say, take with a huge grain of salt. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Lady Golden Dragon. Have a good night. Um, I think Eric and Cindy are up next. Yeah, Eric and uh, Cindy, if you guys want to unmute yourselves, go ahead. Maybe kind of random. Can you hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Um, This is going to sound random all over the place. So first of all, you know, Jesus was salty a lot. (laughs) Hmm. um you know calling them hypocrites and brood of vipers and you whitewash cisterns and all sorts of you know calling them out and not just you know with his hands together in the praying position yeah so he that happens quite quite often when he's dealing with the pharisees (laughs) so um yeah it's kind of like reading jane austen right i mean you expect it to be all tea parties and you know cute dresses but you know it's actually a lot of a lot of snarkiness and a lot of her writing hmm. but um and yeah. i guess the other kind of random thing is the um the temple like robert was kind of talking about you know that the whole idea of what it was supposed to be you know it's not like our mentality of church where you know today we're going to meet and tomorrow we're going to have a boy scout meeting and they're still running around the pews and you know they're going to have a, a church bazaar the next day and you know what i mean i mean to them it was the you know, yeah, like you said, right, it's, it's God's temple, it's God's house. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, if you were, you know, a eunuch couldn't go in to a certain level, and women on their period couldn't go in, sorry to say period, but, you know, <laughs> women on their time couldn't go in. And if, you know, somebody, you know what I mean? I mean, there's so many, if you had dealt with somebody at the funeral that day, you couldn't go, you know, for like three days, you were unclean. I mean, the level of, um, you know, of criteria to have yourself right before even walking in there, right? And then that now they're just in there using it as a convenient marketplace. Yeah. You know, I mean, you should be afraid to walk in there. Mm-hmm. It should be so holy. I, I think and, that's absolutely right, by the way. I In the Old Testament, it certainly speaks of that, yeah. So, hmm. uh, yeah, that's kind of anyway. Well, it's like defending your own house. I mean, uh, let's say you're a Supreme Court justice. You don't even want them out in the street protesting on mm-hmm. your own street, yeah. let alone your yard. So, yeah, well, somewhat, I, I, here I thought there was some like today. big moral principle, and it turns out Jesus is just uh, Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino and get off the <laughs> lawn kind of thing, um, which I also <laughs> find very interesting because. I, I don't know. I, I I also like that philosophy, but, um, but yeah. Um, but let me maybe say just one more thing about that moral principle. I think th- that the, you know, the if you if you read the the Old Testament, you will find at least some kind of principle that to sometimes justify violence. Um, because of religious reasons, and I know that's a very edgy thing to say nowadays but what i mean is you know if god truly is holy and he ought to be honored and god has a plan for you know for everyone's salvation so he god is active in history and and has a certain purpose then god is justified in taking down his opponents uh, right, like things that get in the way of this plan, and sometimes God does it aggressively. I, it, there is this principle that God is sovereign overall, and He can do as He pleases, and that's something that I think really bothers us. Uh, by us, I mean like a modern audience. We're like, no, 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 like no one is sovereign. No one has the right to do as they please. But um, the the biblical story would be that God is sovereign, and and He can. Right. Did you uh, did you guys have any other thoughts or questions, Eric and Cindy? Well, I mean, you're right, Robert. I mean, he strikes people down in the you know Old Testament 
quite often. I mean, it just happens. So it's not like it's, you know, passive. It means, hey, it takes All care right. of business. Yep. Well, thank you guys. Have a great night. Appreciate it. You too. Uh, Eric Marley up next. Uh, for now, Eric is the last question asker, or at least the last request. Uh, so if you want to get a quick last word in, we might have time for maybe one or two more after that, but otherwise we can call it an, uh, an evening after Eric as well. Eric, uh, are you there? Uh, hey, Matt. Uh, Red Falco here. Uh, can you guys hey. hear me okay? Yeah. Uh, I was busy still uh, building my house, so I was... You were building a house. Day. I didn't know that. Well, All right. it's, you know, putting stuff together to be able to put more away. Got it. All right. Basically. Yeah. But um, I'm w- w- wondering also, I have, I have kind of a general question for you, Matt, because uh, me and Brian had an extensive conversation mm-hmm. uh, after the last Bible study about, uh, well, I think we got down to objective truth. And I think that's kind of what this Bible study is about. It's, you know, um, the, the, for some, I think it's the extent to which we understand the Bible but for others, I think it's an effort to be convinced uh, by the resurrection of of uh, Jesus, and therefore the selection of Christianity as a faith. And it's, it's it seems to me that that historical knowledge and certainty about that, especially because these events are already past, so we're tr- trusting others to convey the information to us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a, a asymptotic in a sense, like the cl- closer that you get to um, 100% objective certainty about a certain thing, the more and more evidence that you need, but you'll never quite get there. And so that to me is the, is the cha- cha- challenge with assuming the authority of of really any historical document at all um and uh the, the bible being among them let's say do you uh, do you kind of agree with that assessment or do you draw some a contrast i'm not sure, sure i completely understand the the question or the the, the premise it, it, do you, could, could you phrase it more in more simple terms i know it's a complex concept but sure so it's you know it's this idea that we can never really be be totally sure about anything right and the more distant that we are from something the the more barriers that there are between got it between us and that object yeah just so you're just asking about how sure is sure enough as far as historical events or or yeah in this case events that are centuries ago um right right especially thousands of years ago yeah yeah well i suppose for me um obviously i wouldn't say that historical accuracy is i wouldn't diminish it and say it's unimportant um because i i i'm it is important to the extent that these are stories uh, about what what I'm looking for, at least presented as stories that are about what I'm looking for, which is moral truth, and um, and and I I don't say that to dismiss anybody who's looking for historical accuracy in the sort of the way Robert and I were discussing earlier about uh, about whether this was one event or two events at the temple cleansing, and about whether the gospels all uh, correspond with each other correctly. But um, I guess I guess to answer your question, I'm not actually extremely worried about everything being and a, a perfectly presented historical fact um what i'm worried about is finding the origin for the moral truth of the world and i don't know if i'll find that here or if i won't but um but i suppose to answer your question i don't i don't think i'm actually all that concerned with those details unless i suppose if they were glaring like you could, if you could show this is a historical lie conclusively did not happen because of x y and z or at least severely discredited well then i suppose maybe i would if you could show me that repeatedly this is a historical lie maybe i would start to question how how authentic could the moral lessons be that we derive from a complete fiction i suppose but I don't know. Sometimes you can derive moral truth from complete fiction. I do. I try to do it with movies all the time. 
Now, now that I've offended everybody by comparing, you know, uh, a stupid movie we watched to the Bible, but you get what I mean. Like, I, I'm trying to figure out moral truth and where it comes from. And I suppose uh, specific historical details are, are a little less significant to me. Is that kind of what you were getting at? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay. Did you have any uh, additional thoughts before we? No, it's it's a it's a very complex topic, and I want other people to have time to. All right. Sit in the last comment, if there is any. Sure. Um, good luck with your house. Uh, did you have any thoughts on that, Robert? I, you know, since we're pretty much at the end, I won't say much, but I I do want to point out that one of the distinctives of Christianity and Judaism, I suppose, as opposed to all the other, at least major world religions, is we do make historical claims, hmm. um, you know? And so we are making, of course, moral claims and, and, and all that, but we are saying these events happen. And in fact, as we read a book, you know, another book in the New Testament written by, by Paul, he, he does say like, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, our, our faith is for nothing, like, you know, um, and so that's why I tried to address all this, you know, so methodically and so seriously, because I really do believe that the, his the historicity of this matters. Um, but, but I would say both matters, you know, the idea that it, it kind of answers all of our big questions about morality and all that, and the historicity come together in Christianity. Um, but I'll leave it at that for now. We can talk about it more. Well, yeah, and, and perhaps those things... Uh, intertwine much more in much more significant ways than I understand. Obviously, I'm coming at this from a completely new or unexposed perspective, and so, um, so I suppose. I mean, I, I guess the only question I would uh, only follow up I would have, and, and I will say uh, we're probably over time for everybody who was looking to ask a question tonight. So I apologize for. Um, maybe inviting those a little bit too late, but I appreciate your patience guys. Uh, I, I suppose from my new perspective, I wouldn't say that the history and the morality are entirely separate concepts that have no relationship with one another. But I, but I suppose coming in, in my perspective here, it seems like there could be errors in one, but perfect truth in the other. Yeah. Do you think they're more related than that or uh, no, am I, I, am I mistaken in my kind of initial reaction here? I suppose. No, I, I mean I think that you're right. I think that that you know, let's say the the Bible could have mistakes about you know this event didn't happen this year, but it happened the year before, mm -hmm. or it didn't happen in this city and it happened in that other city. And I don't think that that would destroy the truth of Christianity. You know, I think that sometimes people uh, look at it at biblical inerrancy in that way they're like oh my goodness if he has one mistake like i gotta throw it all out and i think that that's a very unwise position to take because like you're pointing out it could have all of this this moral truth that is perfect but it has mistakes here and there now i'm not saying that that's my view i'm yeah. i'm just saying that that is a potential view and i think that it's absolutely fine um but at the same time at, at least in christianity particularly when it comes to the resurrection it is key to to the history of redemption you know to to salvation and the relationship we can have with god and and so christianity i mean the bible could have all sorts of mistakes but if the bible is wrong about the resurrection then we don't have christianity anymore we'd have something else hmm well now now i guess i'll have to leave that sit because i have major questions about that too that I suppose that if the 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 crucifixion and the resurrection were proven as fabrications, like did not happen, would that erase the truth of what Jesus said otherwise? Uh, I think I a lot of it. Myself. I <laughs> I, I <laughs> think it. I think it would erase a lot of it. You know, like then it would become like just some just some guy who happened to say good things at times, but a lot of the time he's claiming to be the Messiah. And so well, yeah, I suppose that's the, the, that's the distinction that's probably right on is of course, uh, people like, like all of us, we are capable of uh, simultaneous moral successes and failures. If you are in fact uh, a God though, I mean, it, <laughs> moral failure or lying in this case would make you a non-God. 
Yeah, and, and not just that, but I mean, like I said, the, there's kind of the, and we'll discuss this next time, but there's this central idea of redemption that comes through Christ's sacrifice. And if if that part was false, then again, some things Jesus said might still be true, but you're removing, you know, at the great majority of of what otherwise would be true. Sure. All right. Uh, again, I apologize to those uh, question askers we were not able to get to tonight. Uh, I think that's Brian, Jason, Daniel. Uh, I, I'm sorry that I yacked too much. So I will. Uh, we'll, we'll try to get you guys uh, in, a, in a lesson uh, or in a, with a question in one of the next lessons. Thanks for patience on that. Um, and of course, um, the only thing I'll say in closing is obviously don't take anything I'm saying here as as my... I'm not trying to be overly critical or cast too much doubt on this sort of thing. I'm, I'm trying to understand what what degree of wrongness in the text, or it's, it's kind of like what Eric was asking, what degree of wrongness would really matter uh, in terms of how we understand and interpret this text? How, what What is your threshold of error, I suppose? It's interesting to think about. And let me just say, just to summarize, so I'm not misinterpreted, that if I had to answer that question specifically, I would say the resurrection. Like, if we had errors everywhere else in the Bible, I mean, I don't know why we would trust it so much, but yeah. but it would still, quote-unquote, work. Yeah. But if the resurrection is not there, we've got major issues. All right, we will leave it there, and uh, thanks, everybody, for joining tonight and for participating in the discussion. Of course, we will be back uh, next Saturday night, as usual, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and we will resume the discussion then. Until then, have a great night and a great week.